Thank you, Cameron, for reading our scripture tonight. We're grateful for your presence. As always, we appreciate the fact that you've come back. As Jared mentioned a moment ago, we are grateful that you made the choice to come back tonight. And as always, if you're visiting, we encourage you to come back and be with us. Tom O'Neill is with us tonight, and Tom went to the Memphis School of Preaching about 20 years ago. And when I was preaching at Cordova, we supported him. I'm not sure where Tom is sitting right now. Oh, he's in the back. And so I've known Tom for a long time, and he preaches now in Paris, Texas, and does a great job out there, and he's in town for a wedding. And so we're glad to welcome him here tonight. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1 in a moment this morning. A couple of the young folks asked me if they could have some candy, Matt McGee and Grant, and I told them they could, and so we're walking down the hall, and I asked them if Santa was coming to see them. So what are you going to get? And Matt said, I want something big. And then Grant said, I want a four-wheeler. So, times have changed. And so hopefully and prayerfully they'll get what they've asked for. Uh, maybe not. But uh, I'm sure if you don't get what you want, you can take that up with Santa Claus. And he'll be, he'll be more than glad to explain why you did or didn't get what you asked for. But nonetheless, we're grateful for your presence. We hope and pray that everyone has a safe and happy holiday season. We know that there'll be a lot of folks on the road traveling in the next few days, and we pray that you'll have a safe trip to your destination and get back and get ready to go for 2016, the Lord willing. Last week, we looked at the book of Luke and talked about Luke's account of the birth of a child that literally changed the world. And tonight, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 1 and 2. And note the birth of Christ from Matthew's perspective. Now you have to understand that there are four gospel records. Only one gospel, but four narratives of the life of Jesus. And tonight I want us to look at Matthew's analysis of the birth of Jesus. Some 2,000 years before Jesus Christ made his entrance into the world, God said to Abraham, In you shall all nations or families of the earth be blessed. Earlier, God had set forth the promised seed in Genesis chapter 3, following the fall of the first couple. And from that time, God began unveiling his redemptive plan. He needed a family. He needed a seed line. And so, as a result of that, he chose Abraham. And you can, you can trace that seed line, beginning with Abraham down through, well, his children, his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, the family of David, etc. Christ made his entrance into the world at a time designated by Almighty God. As a matter of fact, Paul said, when the fullness of time was come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And so tonight we look at what Matthew has to say about the birth of the king. I want to begin by, first of all, talking about the promise of the birth of Jesus. In connection with this point, there are a couple of things that maybe we ought to consider. First has to do with the power of his birth. And then secondly, I think about the prophecy of his birth. One, I think, very important factor to consider is the birth of Jesus was unlike any other birth as we know it. And so we talk about the birth of the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. Listen, if you would, to Matthew's account beginning in verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. We talked about this being a legal engagement. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. The interesting thing about the conception and birth of Jesus is that he had a heavenly father and an earthly mother. I do not know of anyone else that has ever graced planet earth in that fashion. So we talk about Jesus being fully divine and fully human. Now, with regard to his divinity. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, you remember the apostle Peter identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. So from the vantage point of deity, Jesus was and is the Son of God. From the vantage point of his humanity, he is identified as the Son of Man. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus talked about how the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for the many. So you have Jesus, literally God in the flesh. You remember in John chapter 1, verse 14, when John said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here is the God-man, Jesus Christ. So we think about the uniqueness of his birth. And then there is a second thing that I think is borne out in our text, and that has to do with the prophecy of his birth. The birth of Jesus was no accident. But rather, as I mentioned a moment ago, it was according to God's timetable. Listen, if you would, to what the record says beginning in verse 20. The angel, of course, that had appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, as we mentioned a moment ago. Verse 21, and she shall bring forth a son. And shall call his name Jesus. 
for he will save his people from their sins. Now, note if you would what is said in verse 22. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Matthew is going to quote the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, about the, the coming of the Messiah. And he said, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, or bear a child. This child, this son, would be called Emmanuel. And so Matthew here says that that which is occurring is in accordance with what the prophet said some 700 to 750 years earlier. And here's what he said. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, or some translations say, which is interpreted, God with us. So when Jesus came to earth, it was literally God with us. Now you remember in John chapter 3, verse 16, when Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that word only begotten there means only one of his kind. Jesus is the only begotten of God. He is unique in that fashion. So with regard to the promise of the birth of Jesus. First, there is the power of his birth. And then secondly, the prophecy of his birth. Matthew goes on to say in verse 24 that Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. In other words, he didn't have sexual relations with her until after the birth of Jesus. Now, there's a second thing I want you to see in our text, and that has to do with the purpose of his birth. Back up again and look at verse 21. There was a reason why God sent his son into the world to save the human family. Now, there are a lot of folks in our world today that will celebrate what they believe to be the birth of Jesus on Christmas Day. Historically speaking, Jesus was not born in the month of December. As a matter of fact, if you go back and you look at history, historians and scholars, scholars would bear out that Jesus would have been born during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Somewhere around in our months, somewhere around September or October. We're not encouraged to remember or to memorialize the birth of Jesus, are we? But we are to memorialize or to remember the death of Jesus. Now we understand why Jesus was born, and really that's where the emphasis ought to be. When we talk about Jesus coming into the world, the emphasis ought to be on the why. Why did he come? Well, listen to what the angel said to Joseph. He said, she, that is Mary, will bring forth a son. And he said, you will call his name Jesus. 
for he will save his people from their sins. Now, there are a couple of things to consider here. First of all, Jesus is God's answer to sin. Sin is a problem. It has been a problem since the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember Adam and Eve, they transgressed the law of God, and thus the induction of sin into the world. And as Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and because of sin, death. Death stalks the human family, physically and spiritually. Sin separates us from God. And yet Jesus is God's answer to the problem of sin. Think about that for a minute. First, the Bible talks about Jesus as the spotless lamb. Spotless lamb under the old covenant. Lambs were offered without blemish. In other words, God wanted the best, didn't he? That was a type of the sacrifice of Christ. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, Peter said, You've not been redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, and listen to him, without spot and without blemish. Jesus was God's very best in terms of sacrifice. God gave his absolute very best. You remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 8? God who spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. When God devised the redemptive plan, Inherent in that plan was his very best. Now, what does that say about us? It ought to tell us that we are of great worth to Almighty God. It ought to say to us that our soul is worth more than anything this world has to offer. Remember what Jesus said? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What would you trade for your soul? In Matthew 16, 26, he asked the question, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Your soul is of the utmost value in the eyes of Almighty God. So first of all, Jesus was that spotless lamb. And secondly, he was the submissive lamb. The psalmist in the long ago, and it's quoted by the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 10, the psalmist in foretelling of the coming of Christ, the Redeemer, said in the volume of the book, it is written of me, I come, O Lord, to do your will, O God. Jesus came to fulfill, to execute God's heavenly will. Do you remember the words of the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 5? Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus willingly went to the cross, didn't he? Jesus would say in John chapter 6 and verse 38, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father. In John chapter 17, in the shadow of the cross, Jesus said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus came to submissively give himself for our sins. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus became obedient even unto death. Yes, even the death 
of the cross. So Jesus is God's answer to sin. But then, in the second place, Jesus is God's answer to sinners. That has to do with us. First, to just step back and to recognize that God thought enough of us to devise a plan whereby we could be redeemed. And then to extend that plan, that opportunity to each and every person. God has the answer to your problem. It's an epidemic. It's called sin. Paul said there's none righteous, no, not one. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he said, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin separates us from God, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Those who are outside a covenant relationship with God are without hope and without God in this world. The difference maker, however, is Jesus. Paul would say in Ephesians 2 verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off are brought near, made nigh, by what? By the blood of Christ. So, Jesus was the sacrificial lamb, wasn't he? Jesus paid the ultimate price for the sins of the human family. Jesus talked about the fact that he came for the purpose of saving the human family. In Luke 19, 10, he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Matthew says that the angel said to Joseph that this God-man, Jesus, would save his people from their sins. You have a real problem. I have a real problem. It's called sin. And the only answer to sin, the only remedy there is, is the blood of Jesus. Can you imagine having some horrific disease? A disease that without the proper antidote, you would die? Don't you know that you would go wherever you would do whatever it would take to get your hands on that antidote? The problem of sin is the scourge of the human family. The devil delights in undermining and destroying those who belong to the human family. As a matter of fact, John said that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. I mentioned a moment ago the fact that the devil is responsible for death, physically and spiritually. And yet the Hebrew writer said that Jesus came to destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So Christ came as the lamb, the sacrificial lamb. Do you remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist being some six months older than Jesus, the forerunner to the Christ. The one who would point the lives of people in the direction of the Messiah, the anointed one. When John saw Jesus on one occasion, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus came to help you with your problem of sin. And if you don't get the right antidote, if you don't have His blood, you don't have a prayer. How do we contact the blood of Christ? Well, Jesus shed His blood in death. John 19, verses 34 and 35. 
The only way that I can appropriate that blood is to go where it was shed. Now, Paul said salvation is in Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. The only way that I can get into Christ is to be baptized into Christ, Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Know ye not that all we who were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? When you're baptized into Jesus Christ, all your sins are washed away, Acts twenty two sixteen. You're added to the body of Christ, Acts 2, verse 47. You enjoy all spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1, verse 3. That is, you are redeemed by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 1, 7. You live with the quality of life defined as eternal, 1 John 2, verse 25. So we ought to be grateful that Jesus thought enough of us to come, live, and die for our sins, that God in heaven devised a plan, articulated that plan, and then His Son executed it to perfection. There's a third thing I want you to see very quickly, and that is the place of His birth. Look at chapter 2. Matthew tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem means place of bread. It's interesting to me that Jesus was born in a city bearing the symbolic name place of bread. And he was the bread of life that came down from heaven. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. The prophets had foretold of his birth and specifically of the place where he would be born. We're going to look at that in just a moment, but let me just very quickly introduce you to the wise men, the Magi, who approached Jesus. That is, they sought him out. Listen, if you would, to what the text says. Now, the wise men, the Magi, were the learned people from the East. In other words, they were individuals typically that were knowledgeable of astronomy, astrology, medicine, etc. And so the Bible says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, and Herod, Herod the king, Herod the first, was a monster of a person. As a matter of fact, he does his best to destroy the Christ, which tells us the devil did not want God's plan to come to fruition. So when Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And here's what they said. In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not least among the rulers of Judah. Let me just pause here. Micah is the one that foretold of the birthplace of Jesus. In Micah chapter 5, 
at verse 2. For the Christ, the King of Israel, to be born in some small, insignificant town like Bethlehem was really something. Typically, we think about great people being born in some great, historic, notable city. Not so with Jesus. But now listen to what he says. For out of you shall come a ruler. Now Micah said, Out of you shall come forth a ruler unto me, or one unto me, who shall rule Israel. He's talking about Jesus there. God's talking about Jesus. And he's saying that Jesus would come to rule. He would come to rule, to reign as what? As a king. He was the king of the Jews. But he is, as Paul said, the king of kings and lord of lords. I mentioned last week, if you're going to be a king, you have to have a kingdom. Jesus was not only and is not only a king, he has a kingdom. That kingdom is here. It's called the church of Christ. And those who submit to the will of God, obey the gospel, they are part of the church, the kingdom of God. And Jesus rules and reigns in the hearts and lives of those who belong to the body of Christ. Now Micah, in talking about this ruler that would come forth, he said, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting, from the days of eternity, which underscores the deity of Christ, doesn't it? The pre-existent Christ, the fact of the matter is, Jesus has always existed. He's the second member of the Godhead. He was the Word who became flesh. He's the one that John said in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not a created being. Jesus has always existed. So, the wise men, they had seen this star in the east, and they've come for the purpose of worshiping Him. They've come to approach the Messiah, that is the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. Now verse 7 tells us that Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. That was a blatant lie. Wasn't interested in worshiping Jesus. And so in verse 9, when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, I want you to just think with me for a minute. First, these wise men, the Magi, they had seen this star in the east. And they have diligently sought out the Messiah, the Christ. They wanted to come into the presence of King Jesus, didn't they? That ought to say something to us. That we ought to seek out the Son of God. How do we do that? How do we learn about Jesus? How do we become... How do we... Develop an intimate relationship with the Lord. One way is by reading and studying 
about him in the, in the Word. You can go back to the Old Testament. And those prophets of old painted a picture of Jesus, the coming Messiah. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So you go back to the Old Testament and you see a picture of the Messiah, the Son of God. When you come to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that portrait is complete, isn't it? We see Jesus in all of His beauty, in all of His holiness. We see Him for who He is. Who is He? The Son of God. Do you remember in John chapter 6 when Jesus talked about how He was the bread of life that had come down from heaven? Many of His disciples went back and walked no more with Him. And Jesus asked those who were present, Will you also go away? And Peter spoke up and He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal. And then He said, We have come to know and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the conclusion that all of us ought to come to. When we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and go back and look at the Old Testament, when we read the epistles, and look at what the Scriptures have to say about Jesus, the conclusion ought to be that He is the Son of God, that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So first, they approached Jesus, and then secondly, the Bible tells us they adored Jesus. Note, if you would, what is said. Verse 11, When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. What does that say about Jesus? They were in the presence of God. They're in the presence of this infant child, a baby. God in the flesh the long-awaited Messiah, and they have the presence of mind, the humility to bow and to worship the King. Every week we have the opportunity to come together to worship the King, to pay homage to God. You think about everything that you enjoy, spiritually speaking. It all goes back to one source, doesn't it? God. When we come together to worship, one of the things that we're doing is expressing thanksgiving to the giver of life. Physical life, yes, but more importantly, spiritual life. They were in the presence of the king. And then thirdly, note if you would, not only did they approach Jesus and adore Jesus, but they adorned Jesus. The Bible says that they fell down, they worshipped Him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to Him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They brought these treasures from, from the east. Things of great value. Frankincense used in making grain or meal offerings in under the Old Covenant. It was used in holy oil. Also used in showbread. Myrrh. Both of these, by the way, were extracted from trees. Myrrh was used in making anointing oil. 
used as a perfume. But they brought these treasures and laid them before Jesus. Now, I think there's a lesson there for us. We ask the question, what is it the Lord wants from us? I understand the words of the psalmist are true. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to God. When it's all said and done, He owns everything, lock, stock, and barrel. I'm just a steward of what I possess. I came into this world with nothing, I'll leave with nothing. And so I have to use the things that God blesses me with wisely, prudently. I understand that we give of our means every first day of the week. But more importantly, what the Lord really wants from us. We talk about these men came and presented gifts unto the Lord. They gave Him their best, didn't they? Is that not what the Lord wants from us? He wants us to give our best. That is, He wants me to give my best in terms of my time, my talents, my treasures. Does He deserve just the scraps of life or does He deserve my everything? I think He deserves everything. When you look at the life of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, he said, The life that I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. He prefaced that by saying, It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When He wrote to the church at Colossae, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, He said, For Christ who is our life. That's it right there. The Lord needs to be the summation of life. I want to close... To I want to close our study tonight by simply saying this. King Jesus came to earth for a reason. The reason was to save you from sin. And you have a tremendous opportunity tonight, if you're not a child of God, to become one of His followers. When you talk about following Jesus, it means putting Him first, denying self, Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Are you willing to follow Jesus, to follow in his footsteps? Are you willing to make him the Lord of your life? If so, I want to encourage you tonight. Put your faith and trust in him. Believe that he is the Son of God, John 8, 24. Confess his name before others, as the eunuch did in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. Be baptized into Christ, all your sins will be washed away, Acts 2.38. And then be faithful until death, Revelation 2.10. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful, I would, I would strongly encourage you to make things right. We had some folks this morning that came, asked for the prayers of the church, and we're grateful for that. It may, have, it may have been the case that you were here, you wanted to come, but you didn't for whatever reason. One young lady came to Jared and me after services this morning and said, I should have come forward, but I didn't. And so we had prayer, restoration. You could come tonight as we stand and sing.